This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. In case you need some proof that the world has completely lost its mind, and I'm I'm reading some of these things in the last day or so, I got to tell you, I really do believe the world has officially lost its mind. I'm going to give you three examples, three bits of proof that the world has officially lost its mind. Starting with, to me, the goofiest one, the absolutely most ridiculous one. And I am not making this up. So you're going to think that I am creating this to be funny or to be ironic or to be outrageous or something. This is absolutely true. I am not making this up. A University of Illinois math professor, a mathematics professor at the University of Illinois, someone who you would believe would be a pretty intelligent person, has published a paper arguing that the ability to solve geometry problems, algebra problems, other mathematical problems is perpetuating white privilege. If you can do math, that is your white privilege that is at play in this and that somehow that's a bad thing. She wrote a piece called Building Support for Scholarly Practices in Mathematics Methods. Uh, Here's one of the quotes from this. School mathematics curricula emphasizing terms like Pythagorean theorem and pi perpetuate a perception that mathematics was largely developed by Greeks and other Europeans. Well, this is a bad thing, apparently. I, I didn't know that it mattered who created or answered the math questions. I mean, Albert Einstein, I guess it was a bad thing that Albert Einstein came up with answers because... Anyway, um, she goes on, on many levels, mathematics itself operates as whiteness. Who gets credit for doing and developing mathematics, who's capable in mathematics, and who is seen as part of the mathematical community is generally viewed as white. Well, I'm not sure about that, but do we really? See, I thought that math, I was never good at math, so Clearly, my white privilege did not help me because I was terrible at math, as a matter of fact. I was awful at math. Had to take summer school one year because I failed grade nine math the first time. I figured it out after that, sort of. Didn't help me. And I know lots of people. I grew up with lots of people who were not Caucasian, who were not white, who were terrific at math. Better than me at math. I can guarantee you that. I, I don't know how that affects things, but... Do we, I thought math was kind of the one subject that was beyond these kind of things. Like a teacher can have a subjective grading policy for English or for history or a geography, all these different things. They could give you marks based on all kinds of different things. I thought math was the one that was basically objective. You get the right answer or you get the wrong answer. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what race, what nationality, what whatever. If you get it right, you get it right. If you get it wrong, you get it wrong. Well, apparently not. Apparently, according to this professor at the University of Illinois, this is a race. Math is a race-based problem. Hmm. I'll tell you one other thing about this. If I'm driving my car across a bridge that has been designed by engineers, I frankly don't care if it was designed by someone who was white or African-American or Asian or Middle Eastern or I, as long as they figured out the math problem correctly so that I could get my car from one side of the bridge to the other, that's all I care about. When in the, in the space program, 
Did you, have you seen that movie? What was that movie that just was out about the uh, African American women? It was uh, it was an excellent Hidden movie. Figures. Hidden figures. Thank you. Yes, Ben. Hidden figures. Excellent movie. Did we care who came up with the equations? Don't. As long as they got to the moon and back. But apparently, even math is now drawn into the race situation in the states. Um, oh, she she adds by the way, uh, many people have experienced microaggressions from participating in math classrooms where people are judged by whether they can reason abstractly. So they've experienced microaggressions from participating in math classrooms where people are judged whether they can reason abstractly. I should probably be very concerned about this. I have probably been microaggressed without even knowing it. So micro that I didn't even realize that my inability to do abstract thinking in math formulae and math situations has probably caused me to be microaggressed against, and I should probably be much more upset about this. I should. I should probably go back to my high school days and rethink this and decide whether or not somebody was being really unfair to me and thinking poor thoughts about me because I couldn't do my math problems correctly. I'm, 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 suddenly I'm, I'm very offended. In retrospect, I am now very offended. Whiteness or not, I am very offended that you have microaggressed me. Ben, were you ever microaggressed against because of your math abilities or unabilities, inabilities? Occasionally, yeah. You, you had someone give you the stink eye because you could not solve pi to the 37th number. Actually, I started to memorize it to that point when I got a little too angry one time. I said, nope, I'm going to memorize as much as I can. All right. Well, there's, there's your first sign that the world has gone nuts, that suddenly now math, being able to do math demonstrates that you are a racist. So if you do, if you are white or Caucasian or however we're going to define that now, if you are of the Caucasian background and you can do math, you are a racist. Just remember that. Next on the list of proof that the world has completely lost its mind, coming from our own Hamilton Spectator, lovely story today in the paper by John Wells, lovely story about Esther the Wonder Pig. Did you see this story today? No. So north of Hamilton, there is a pig, and it's a long story, but this pig was adopted as a piglet, which I guess that part goes without saying because no people have pigs. So they have to adopt it. There's really no other biological way to have a pig. Anyway, they've adopted this pig and it was supposed to be a runt, I guess. And it has grown up now and it's a gigantic pig and it has its own Facebook page and it's some kind of online celebrity as pigs can be. But this pig is, well, it's got some health problems now. It had a seizure of some kind and they're not really sure what's wrong with it. So here's where, here's what's going on now. Uh, there are all kinds of people, A, wanting to change the rules for whether you can transport a pig back and forth across the border to go down to the States to get health treatment, and B, because here in Canada, because in this area, we don't have the appropriate medical devices to be able to inspect, check, put a pig, a 650-pound pig into some sort of MRI machine People want to raise $1.6 million to be able to buy a pig-friendly MRI device to, to be able to scan 
this pig and to diagnose what's wrong. I'll tell you what's wrong. Spending $1.6 million on an MRI machine for a pig. I mean, I, I, I love pets. I have three in the house. One of them is in my daughter's room. It's a bird. I never see it really, but we have two dogs running around the house. I love pets. Nobody needs to be MRIing a pig. I don't care if Charlotte or Wilbur, I guess, from Charlotte's Web was on his last legs. We don't need a $1.6 million MRI machine for Wilbur. At the risk of sounding cold and callous, 650 pounds is a lot of delicious, delicious bacon. 1.6 million barbecue? Ooh, 650-pound ba- barbecue. Mm-mm-mm. I'm sorry, Esther. I'm sure you're a lovely pig with a delightful personality and a sunny disposition that lights up every room you walk into. But $1.6 million to check your health, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe people are going to say I'm cold. Maybe people are going to say I'm uncaring. It's a pig. It's a pig. Third on our list of proof that the world has gone completely nuts. And by the way, if you wish to call in, I'd happily discuss with you the relative merits of spending $1.6 million to diagnose the health concerns of a pig. If you want to call in, if you want to have that discussion, I'd be happy to. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. If you think that you can defend $1.6 million to save the life of a pig, I would be happy to have you on the show, just if you want to. But number three on the list of proof this week that the world has gone completely off its rocker. A couple days ago, Canada's national women's hockey team, the team that will eventually play in the Olympics in a few months for us, uh, Laura Fortino from Hamilton is on that team. Renata Fast from Burlington is trying out for that team. Sarah Nurse from Hamilton is there at camp and is in the final. She will be hopefully making that team. Anyway, a couple days ago, they had their first pre-tournament game, first of six against the United States in in Quebec City or a suburb of Quebec City. And Canada lost. They lost five to two. But it's accounted for nothing. It's a pre-tournament game. It's a warm-up. It's to used to playing with each other. It's to get familiar with each other. It's to work up towards something. Uh, Canada's coach at the end of the game, after a 5-2 loss, this was not, you know, 19-0 or something. At the end of a 5-2 loss, Canada's coach spoke to the media and described it, and this is an exact quote, this is a direct quote. She described it as, quote, an embarrassment to our country. It was an embarrassment to our country that our women in an exhibition game lost. A reasonably close game. May not have played their best, but lost a reasonably close game to a very good opponent. That's an embarrassment to our country, she said. Really? Really? I mean, look, we we want our Canadian women to do well at the Olympics. I think we have grown to expect our Canadian women to do well at the Olympics. We have two, one, two, maybe three local women who will be playing on that team. We will be cheering for them. We'll be rooting for them to do well at the Olympics. But really, have we reached a point now in this country with hockey where if you lose a pre-tournament game, it's an embarrassment to our country? Holy cow. Imagine 
Imagine the humiliation this country will face if we ever lose a game in the actual Olympics. I mean, shut down the borders. Just be done with hockey. We'll just have to shut the whole program down because, I mean, if this is embarrassing to our country, imagine what a real loss will be. We won't even be able to take it. What is going on with people, honestly? We seem to have have lost all... reason and I don't know everything is so over the top now everything is so serious everything is so meaningful and not necessarily in a good way people we relax a little bit Let, let's have some some reason and some priorities and some ability to to deal with stuff. I don't know I'm just Math is racist. Pigs need MRI machines, and a hockey loss is an embarrassment to our country. It's uh, it gets very difficult to keep track of what's actually important in life when you start dealing with stuff like this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. I have a question about allegiances because it seems to me that you are entitled, you are allowed, you're encouraged to be a fan of a team, but once you establish yourself, especially as a celebrity or someone who is well-known, as soon as you would establish yourself and dig in your heels as someone who is a fan of a particular team, you should stick with that team. Don't go jumping around left and right looking for a team that can suddenly win so you can be part of the celebration. Let me bring in Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. He is not the guy I'm talking about, Bubba. I am I am a huge Jerry Seinfeld fan, but I'm having a great deal of difficulty watching Jerry Seinfeld, Mr. New York Mets supporter, sitting in the stands at Dodger Stadium wearing a Dodgers hat, jumping up and down, celebrating them winning that game last night. This is causing me great angst. Why is this bothering you so much? you got to pick a team and stick with the team. And if they win... Great, but you can't go hopping around just looking to be on the winning side now, you know, every time. It's like Hillary Clinton grew up in Chicago, was a Cubs fan until she moved to New York and told everyone, now I'm a Yankees fan. I've always been a Yankees fan. Bull! (laughs) No, you haven't. You're a team hopper. There's nothing worse than a team hopper. Yeah, but what makes you think that he was a Mets fan? I'm not talking about Seinfeld. What makes you think he was a Mets fan to start with in the first place? Because You mean like at the beginning of time? Because well, he's always I mean, worn the Mets hat, and he's always been at the Mets games. He's a season ticket holder. He's he's pr- loudly proclaimed himself as Mr. New York Mets fan. Do you remember the second spitter with Keith Hernandez in the show with the yeah, uh, yeah, yeah he was yeah. he is Mr. But he New- was a, but he was a New York guy portraying a New York guy at the time, and this is why I'm I'm, I'm not even, I'm being serious here. Well, what if what about like when he was fifteen? He could have been a Chicago Cubs fan. Well, maybe he was, but and, and I'm telling... Maybe this is his third favorite team now. Once you have set your flag in the turf to say, this is my team, stick with your team. Stick with your team. Or do something to besides showing up just for the World Series. At least for a year, put in some time with a team. Come but on. You, do you, well, hold on, but wait. And, and this is, I mean, you only get this in some leagues. Um... And I wouldn't really say you can't do this in hockey, like Western Conference, Eastern Conference, but just because baseball is so unique with two different styles of games, can you not have a a favorite National League team and a favorite American League team? Yeah, but the Mets are in the National League, and the Dodgers are too. I'm I'm not not talking about Jerry. I'm done with Jerry. No, I can overall. 
I could look. I, I yes, yes. I would say yes. I could say you could have a favorite. English Premier League team and a favorite Bundesliga team and a favorite Spanish League team in soccer, whatever. I just, I just watch these celebrities do this stuff. Pick a team, cheer for a team. You know, Drake. Drake is another one. Drake is the guy. Oh, I'm Mr. Toronto Raptor. And then when the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Golden State Warriors walk into town, he's all Mr. Oh, I'm buddies with all the guys on those teams. Pick a team. Well, he is buddies with those guys. Pick a team, Bubba. Pick a team and stick with that team. This is outrageous that guys do this just to get their face on TV showing, hey, look, Jerry Seinfeld supports a winner. And I love Jerry Seinfeld. Stick with the Mets, and then in 75 years when they win something again, it'll be a big celebration. I was like, uh, what's his name? I I actually, I forgot his name. Bill Murray. The big Boston Red Sox fan. Oh, oh, you mean uh, uh, Matt Damon and uh, those guys? or uh, Matt Damon, his buddy. Yeah, and, and Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, yes. Yeah, okay, good for that. And again, Bill Murray. Bill Murray's a Chicago Cubs fan. He waited, I don't know if Bill Murray personally waited 108 years. I have no idea how old he is. <laughs> he does look old. But, but when they won, okay, you know what? Now that your team won, you get to celebrate. And look, that's Bill Murray who got to finally enjoy the Cubs. I didn't see Bill Murray going, oh, you know what? This year I'm a Blue Jays fan. Next year I'm a whatever fan. Pick your team. Yeah, it's true because even when Chicago, the White Sox had their little a couple of runs, uh, he was nowhere to be found. Pick your team. I'm just I'm just saying this is a this one drives me nuts. Pick your team, especially if you're a celebrity, because I always think they're only doing this to get FaceTime with the winner. Pick your team. Well, you know that's that's why they're superstars. They love the camera. Uh, I guess. All right. Well, speaking of picking your team, here's why I really wanted to have you on tonight. Uh, not to talk about Jerry Seinfeld and his team-hopping shenanigans. Will you stop watching Seinfeld? Uh, no, I will not stop watching Seinfeld. No, I, in fact, will continue to quote him at least once a day, which uh, happens in my life. It seems to come up. But here's the team that I am very curious about. Uh, there was a, a report that came out today that pointed out some of the players who have been chosen to play for Canada in a pre-Olympic tournament that is going to be taking place in Finland over the next little while. And they don't have the complete rundown of names. They only have a few of the names. But again, this is supposedly an introductory pre-Olympic thing. The guys who are being invited to this are people uh, you can only assume are guys they're looking at to get a sense of whether or not this could be Team Canada since there will be no NHL players in the Olympics. Let me give you some of the names. Tell me how impressed you are with potential Team Canada 2018. Chris Lee, Rene Bork, Ben Scrivens, Christian Thomas, Dylan Sakura, Zach Whitecloud. Are you going to get up at 3 in the morning to watch them play in South Korea? Actually, I am. Really? Yeah. Let me tell you why. Um, these are guys that have had, for the most part, you know, we've Ben Scrivens, we know here, played goaltender with the Maple Leafs. A lot of these guys had a, had a, either a very, very long career. I mean, we might get Jerome McGinnell on this team. Uh, or guys with, that are pretty much either playing in Europe or have had some type of cup of coffee in the National Hockey League or spent lots of time in the American Hockey League. I'm really curious to see, and we do see this at the Spengler Cup, which is a long-running tournament that is played at Christmas time that Canada, you know, has has done very well in over the years. That no one pays attention to, but yes, you're correct. We've done okay. You know, we, we've done well in that. But I'm interested to see how these guys will play in world competition. We have said for many, many years, uh, even a, a, a you know a hockey pundit like Don Cherry, that we could dress three or four teams 
and possibly win the World Cup of Hockey or the Olympics. So when we get a team which will probably be viewed as a third or fourth level team, I'm curious to see how we will do against some of the best in the world. Now, mind you, too, because of the National Hockey League ruling, many of teams you know, in Russia, Finland, their best players won't be playing either. So I think there is an equalization of it somewhat. So I, I find this interesting to see how this is all going to work out. Yeah, I think, you know, Russia may have a pretty good team because they've got a lot of guys who are back over in the KHL. So they have some players who are pretty elite-level players who yes. are still out of the NHL. But still the top-level elite Russians are playing in the National Hockey League. Most of them are. And the rest of the guys, the rest of the countries, you're, you're correct, will be in a similar, I think, situation to Canada, I think, for the most part, because Finland and Sweden and the United States certainly in the Czech Republic, uh, Germany. I mean, those got those countries. Their best players are definitely over here in the NHL. But I just I find it hard to believe because I've used this line before, but it's true. There's there's an old line by um, in that song, uh, "Second that emotion" that yep. says, "A taste of honey is worse than none at all." And I'm looking at this going, we've had now had four Olympics, five Olympics, six Olympics, whatever it is with NHL players, and the level of hockey has been so good, and the skill level has been so high that I just can't, I'm going to have a hard time, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to have a hard time getting really geeked up to watch Chris Lee and Zach Whitecloud out there skating around representing Canada. They may do a terrific job. I just I, That, to me, you is going to be hard. The, you just said the key word there, Scott, representing Canada. And, and I think that's where it's important for us to, to back these guys because these are the guys that are truly, truly, truly. I'm not saying that some of, you know, that uh, Sidney Crosby or Alex Ovechkin and you know, guys that have actually been vocal. Um, you know, Austin Matthews has been vocal that he wanted to represent his country. Uh, but those guys are getting the big paycheck. These are the guys that are not getting a big paycheck, and they will have an unbelievable pride about wearing the Maple Leaf sweater. And that you know what? And, and you're right. Half of the names the public will not know. Maybe even more than half. But they will maybe see a good team that have worked really hard to put themselves in a situation and possibly win a, a medal for this country. You know, we have also heard lots of opposition. Um, maybe not so much in this country, but there's also been lots of op- opposition that I've heard from people that are like over the years with you know basketball with the dream team and Canada's do- you know somewhat domination of you know, at least recently in hockey that they don't like seeing the pros in hockey. So here we are with an I'm not going to call them amateur athletes, but here's an opportunity for the for if you want to call the guys that are playing for the love of the game. And you know, and the, and the the Maple Leaf on their sweater to you know maybe win a gold medal. So that's why I think I'm a little, I'm maybe even slightly more interested. I would have loved to have seen. If we're not going to send the NHL players, honestly, I would have loved to have seen the this tournament become the World Junior Tournament or vice versa. The World Junior Tournament become play it during the Olympics. Well, for one year, we'll make this the under twenty or under even if you want to make it the under twenty one or something under twenty three. Although. Most of the best players under 23 are still going to be in the National Hockey League. But you make this the World Juniors, you know what? You can't even argue at that point that this is just a bunch of Canadians arguing because we always win. Because we don't win anymore. It's been a while since we've won the World Juniors. But we'll still see that tournament as well, too. Oh, I know. But that would have, to me, that would have made the Olympics meaningful in a bigger way because it's, it's your best... 
players of an age group at least. It's a, it's it is your best against someone other's best, as opposed to our riffraff, our retirees, our leftovers, our third or fourth string. So if you had made it our best who are under 20 years old, at least, I could get behind that one, I think, a little bit easier, too. And I think most people would. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you. I mean, we can agree to disagree on that one. But I, but I, I, am, I am definitely interested on, on seeing these guys because these are the guys that, to me, that w- would do it for nothing. And are doing it for nothing. For sure, for sure. And, you know, this is, to me, this would be the equivalent, you know, and I don't know if this is a comparison or not, but for me this would be the equivalent of, of, you know, going down to the Greitmeyer Arena tonight and watching the Dundas Real McCoys play. Guys that just, that are, they're, they're, they just love the game. And, and, and it goes to just an unbelievably higher level level for some of these guys and and let, let, let's not fool ourselves here there are some very good hockey players that are canadian that are playing you know in europe and just you know this is a small club of only 730 players that you know mostly canadians in the national hockey league but you know this country has produced a lot of other good hockey players that are playing elsewhere and and i and again in this situation where it's pretty equal because the other teams will be fielding similar teams uh, you know what? It could be very, very interesting. I will say this. I applaud 1,000%. I applaud their passion and their desire to play for Canada, although uh, I think there's an awful lot of people who, if you had the chance to play in the Olympics, would be happy to go. But still, these guys, as you say, uh, they are doing it because they want to be playing in the Olympics, not because they've got a big paycheck or anything else. So, yes, I, as far as that goes, I, I applaud them 100%. You know who I think, though, is going to benefit greatly from this, whether we think that this team is going to be fun to watch or a bunch of no-names or whatever, I look at the other side of the ice, and I think this is going to be the time, especially in Canada, that maybe for the first time our women's team is better known. The players, many of them are going to be, their name is better known, and there's going to be, a, a, when you break it down as a percentage basis, because in, in the past, probably 75% of the interest is in the men's and 25 in the women's. I think it's going to be higher this time on the women's side, or at least equal. Mm-hmm. Because, there's no N- because there's no because there's no NHLers, and no, we know I, I, the women. No, I find that I, I I can't see that, and and I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the day, as much as we've we it, they've tried so hard, and I know it's the, it's getting better, but it's going to take a very very long time. Like, what's the gold medal game going to be? Canada, U.S. No doubt okay. about it, and, and that's a problem. That is a problem, and 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 I think that will until they can figure out a way to continue to develop and I know there are a lot of countries um, England uh, that comes to mind there are some of the Asian countries are putting big money into their women's programs but until you know maybe two or three Olympics from now when some of these teams can have more than two or three really superior players then to me that still becomes a Call me when the final begins. Yeah, it, it listen. It's they are getting better, but it is still a two-team tournament by and large. Although, as I say, because one of the things that makes people watch certain sports or be care, or care about certain sports is when you know something about the athlete. It, it is. I mean, if you know, um, you know, there's a reason why the UFC had the has had the reality show for you know in the uh, in the UFC house uh, for a while and that's you get to know something about these people you get to then possibly care a little bit you have a little bit of a connection to them i think the fact that we know the canadian women many of them 
is it's going to go a long way because we don't know the Canadian men, and I really think it's going to help when, as far as the interest goes. You're you're 100% right. No one is going to argue. If it's anybody but Canada and the States in the final, it would be a shock. It, no question. It's a two-team two tournament. But, man, I, I think they can really benefit from this. See, but I, this is where I don't see the ben. I can't see the benefit because I believe most of the public won't watch. Like, it, no one's going to watch a lot of the Canadian the preliminary games. Uh, again, people will their interest will peak in the final, and that will be it. The rest of the way, I'm not quite sure uh, because of the the sort of obvious nature that this tournament will have because of the quality of of, of the opponents that are will be competing. I just I, I I don't see people flocking to the television to see a women's uh, game between Canada and Germany. I I just don't see it. Whereas I think with this men's thing, there is a there will be a curiosity. And I will also say this: it is also up to the responsibility of the of the the broadcast um, partners, which I believe are CBC and TSN, to teach us about some of these men's players. Again, there are many stories. There's probably some really interesting stories about some of these players that we don't know about that might make us more interested in some of these players. You know, remember that show? Was it on CBC or CTV or wherever it was, TSN, a few years ago, Making the Cut? Remember that show? Yes. Where it was basically American Idol for hockey. You had a whole bunch of guys show up, and they tried out, and they got whittled down and whittled down, and eventually... Each Canadian team, and there were six at the time, took one of these guys. Now, I don't believe any of them played a game in the NHL. One of them won an Allen Cup for the Dundas Real McCoys, Mike Mole, the goalie. He was one of the winners. See, there's a way. There's what they should be doing. Hockey Canada, right now, should be restarting, making the cut, and one guy who wins gets to play on the Olympic team. There's how you get interest in this men's team and how you get the Olympics going. Sure, I, I, I'll I try out. I would I mean, try out. It's work for the UFC. Uh, well, hey, I would try out. I'd be the first cut, but I would try out. Everybody would try it. Wait, I might get to go to the Olympics, and <laughs> and I think you know the the level of interest then in building that show to get one guy that's going to pop out the other end and be able to walk into the stadium in South Korea as part of the Olympics. Man, I just. You and I just stumbled on something here. We should trademark this and do it ourselves. We'd make a fortune. I, I think I think there would be definitely interested. I mean, first of all, anything hockey in this country, there's an attraction to. And if you could put together some type of show like this, you know, uh, that that would you know pit others against each other. I, I think that would be fun to watch. Oh man, I'm 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 calling Hockey Canada as soon as we get off the phone today. You can tweet them. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Hockey Canada, I've got an idea. It'll only cost you a million dollars of pay to me for my idea. Let's put the bill on Sportsnet. They spent how how much for the NHL? Yeah, well, it's like billions of dollars. Well, they don't even notice a million that's gone missing. (laughs) Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can watch him tonight at 11 o'clock. Always appreciate it, sir. Thanks for doing this. Always fun, Scott. Uh, You know what? That would be a great idea. Not enough time now to do it, but next time, if this is the case, next time, if we don't have NHL players in the next Olympics either, making the cut, Olympic edition, one guy makes the team. That would actually be awesome. By the way, Canada's women and the U.S. women are actually playing as we speak right now. They have a game going on, a preseason, pre-tournament game in Boston. Uh, Canada is up one nothing, so this is looking like it will not be an embarrassment to our country, at least not as it stands right now. We'll let you know what... Uh, how this game goes for those who are interested. Some 
are going to be so interested in the women's hockey now because they're not interested all in the men. And Bubba's probably right. I'm sure Bubba's right. There will be others who will still say, I don't care. I'll watch any men's hockey. Don't care who's on the team. I'll watch them. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The JFK assassination is one of the two or three granddaddies of the conspiracy world. But there are others. It's far from the only conspiracy that's out there. It's far from the only grand conspiracy that people play around with. You know that go online, you can see tons of stuff that would argue that 9-11 was an inside job. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, you can. So there will be people who believe the moon landing was staged. Some people believe this fits in perfectly with that. Some people believe there are alien corpses still in cool vats of something, that Area 51, or that the Holocaust never happened. On and on and on and it goes. Some believe Osama bin Laden was never killed. So the question I had as I was listening last night and as we were talking is, why are so many people seemingly willing to suspend their disbelief, willing to overlook some things, or willing to jump in with both feet and buy into these theories? Well, Dr. Mark Busser is a political science prof at McMaster University. He teaches a course or courses on fake news and conspiracies. He joins me now. Uh, Dr. Busser, thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. We are, I expect you would probably agree, we are now in the next few days and weeks going to be hearing a lot about JFK again because of these documents that are coming out. And there will be people that will say, come on, this is just a complete waste of time. At the same time, we do love this stuff, don't we? We love the idea of conspiracy theories. Absolutely. Uh, I think no matter what happens, no, no matter what gets released in the next few days, I think we're going to see a whole bunch of new stories either saying it's put to rest or opening up new narratives and new explanations. So I think we're in for a bit of a ride. But you don't really think that this is going to put the whole thing to rest? No, not at all. No, there's no way this ends the conspiracy theories. No, even, even if we find out that there's something surprising, even if we find out um, that something's being admitted to or some records are are kind of shocking us tomorrow, there will be folks, I, I, I'd be willing to bet, that will say, well, even that's not the real story. They're making that up instead of the real story. Of so course, yes. sort of this tendency we, we tend to see again and again. There, there could be a video that was somehow shot by a hidden camera in the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository showing Oswald firing the gun and people would still say, well, that's rigged or that's made up or whatever I think, else. I think you're exactly right, yeah. And so that's what's so interesting about studying conspiracy theories is that they're sort of um, uh, bulletproof. They're sort of um, counter-evidence proof. So why? why? Why are, first of all, why are there so many of them? Well, I think one of the big reasons, I mean, as, as someone who studies this stuff and as a social scientist, I think one of the reasons is that we sort of have a hard time as, as you know, human beings and human minds wrapping our heads around the idea that major events can be caused by complicated social forces, right? We don't, want to, we don't want to tell ourselves that celebrities who we love can be killed or that major events can happen um, just by, by circumstance, because of one kind of lone person, or that major shifts in how our society works happen because of sort of a small collective consequences of many people's little choices and actions. We want to think there's a villain, and we want to think hmm. there's an agent or someone making decisions on purpose 
to make things happen, especially when we don't like what's happening. So if something enormous, or at least enormously impactful, takes place, the idea that a Lee Harvey Oswald, a guy who was a nobody, could cause that by himself doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Right. Or something like Princess Diana's death. Sure. When she's so beloved that she holds a special place, sort of a celebrity, yeah, but even kind of beyond, uh, beyond that, sort of in the pantheon of super celebrities, the idea that something as mundane as a car crash or drunk driving could kill her is just inconceivable to a lot of people. And so I think we look sometimes for stories, we look for villains, and I think this is it's a sort of a little bit how we're wired. There's some arguments that way about a kind of evolution in the human brain and looking for patterns when they, even when they might not be there, because maybe, you know, uh, there's an argument I keep hearing that if in the wild our ancestors uh, kind of ran away because they heard a bu- heard rustle in the bushes and thought it might be a predator, if they were wrong, no loss. If they were right, they just saved their skin. And so there's some arguments that maybe this is sort of a thing that we have an inclination to do if we don't let our better angels take us over. I actually forgot about the Princess Diana one. So yeah, that was uh, that's another right, great yeah. one. And I just there was just a, a whole series because of course the anniversary of her death was on, and there's just a whole series of documentaries and stuff about that one and how you know the paparazzi or whoever was behind it. So uh, does this mean though that we are when with what you described, does this mean that we are then naturally distrusting as people? I mean, I'm not so pessimistic to to, um, to think that we're stuck whatever whatever our nature has uh, has in store for us. That's where we end. But I do think that if we're not more careful, if we just sort of um, if, if we don't watch ourselves, we can tend towards that way. But we tend towards a lot of things. We can we can sort of rise above. And so what I'm interested in is, is talking to with students and with kind of people in the public. But how do we how do we ask critical questions about conspiracies? And we should uh, uh, the powerful uh, promising thing about conspiracy theories is that they remind us to ask tough questions of elected officials, of professors like me, and to make sure we're turning on our skeptical thinking caps. Right, and that's a healthy and good thing in a democratic society. But that's also creating some of the conspiracies, right? Because well, if we are skeptical, we will then not necessarily trust those in power. And therefore, if those in power tell us something, we are skeptical of the official version, which creates the conspiracy theory. You've nailed it. And so I think that's the, that's the, the trick for us, even as a society, but for academics like me too, to figure out how do we get people to a healthy skepticism where we question the powerful, we ask critical questions of our textbooks, and we make sure we're, we're turning on our brain so that we don't become gullible, but we also don't want to become cynical, where we throw out perfectly good arguments and perfectly good evidence just because we've learned to be distrusting. It, but to go to your first point, though, it is healthy. Even if someone says to you, um, the sky is blue, it's not right. unhealthy to look at the sky and use your own judgment and use your common sense to determine whether or not they're telling you the truth. Right. My two-year-old son, uh, three-year-old son tonight was admiring the beautiful red sunset and uh, talking about why the sky was red tonight. So, I mean, you, you, we, we have complicated answers to sometimes simple questions. So I think the real trick, though, is figuring out how do we make sure that in being, um, in being skeptical, we don't actually slip into a new set of uh, beliefs that we're just going to hold to no matter what evidence is presented. And that's where some people have concerns about conspiracy theories, that while they're promising because they remind us to be skeptical, that sometimes they steer too, more, too far into cynicism where people have decided what their story is and that they're going to stick to it no matter what new evidence comes. And we'd like to see people constantly being open to new evidence and to the fact that they might get surprised. Was there a time when 
if you either suggested or said you agreed with a conspiracy theory that you would have been labeled basically a nut? I think that's uh, too often the way that the term gets used. And it gets thrown around a lot um, in order to marginalize or discredit people, right? To say, you know, those voices aren't worth listening to. Those are conspiracy theorists. And I think that's why what we're trying to do um, in kind of the, the world of universities and researchers is take another look at conspiracy theories and recognize that, that too often um, we treat this in a dismissive way without recognizing that it's not just people on the fringes or people kind of um, who have locked themselves in their basements who are doing conspiracy theorizing. Sometimes it's powerful governments and it's press uh, press secretaries of, of powerful prime ministers and, and presidents who are using kind of fear of these other people or fear of those people in order to sort of hide the truth and sort of or steer the conversation in the direction they want to go. So looking at who does this sort of oversimplifying and this sort of, um, kind of othering, as we like to call it, um, and we sometimes find that we we oversimplify if we just think it's crackpots on on the on the social fringes. Right, because that's often the case. If it's a conspiracy theory, the people who believe it must be crackpots or people living in their mom's basement who are just you know whatever. We we don't generally the the word conspiracy theory, the two words conspiracy theory, these days seems to me anyway carries a negative connotation that if you believe it, you must be crazy. Right, and but I think partially that's because there's a tendency. Um, amongst uh, a subgroup. Um, conspiracy theories, I think, are healthy, and there's all kinds of different ones, right? Some of them are great, some of them are a little less well-founded, but they're mostly just topics and theories. But I think what a lot of people are, are sort of getting a little bit worried about is conspiracism, and that's a slightly different thing. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of when you start seeing everything as a conspiracy, or that you um, start... Um, any new bit of information, you build it into your story. So let's say if you find a news report comes out that disproves the conspiracy you believe in, you say, ah, well, that, that reporter is, is on the take, right? Uh, that reporter must be part of the conspiracy. And so you build this uh, kind of resistance to any new facts by just making the arguments and making your story bigger and bigger until it includes the United Nations and every government and every corporation. <laughs> and the Illuminati is involved right. in everything, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so like, following the path of looking into particular conspiracy theories with critical questions I think is, is great and it helps a lot of people learn about our world and learn about governments and how they work. But what gets dangerous is when you start to oversimplify and build this kind of other uh, story that kind of is insular, right? So it, it protects itself against new evidence. And as someone who teaches, I love to get people thinking about new evidence and thinking about what we call disconfirming evidence to well, really take seriously the other side. What it seems to me is with, with most of these conspiracy theories, at least the ones that I can think of, the tricky part is there is some nugget of truth in where they start from. So right. there's something in the official narrative that doesn't quite fit or doesn't quite make sense. And therefore, if that's not true, then the whole story must be untrue. Therefore, we have to now find what was the real story. And my experience for, for most things is very few things in life lay, fall into plan perfectly. Right. So, but that one little thing can prove that nothing else that's in that story can possibly be true. They're lying to you. Absolutely. There's a really great example for this. Another one on the uh, 
on the JFK assassination uh, conversation um, about the Umbrella Man, a really famous example. Right. Because in the, the famous The Bruder film, you can see this guy with an umbrella, and it was a beautiful sunny day. And so, um, um, if your listeners are out there, there's a great New York Times video that, that tells the story in a kind of mini-documentary form about the Umbrella Man. And the actual story about why he brought the umbrella was pretty mundane. It was actually a kind of protest against Kennedy's father. I mean, it was really kind of a convoluted story. And it's so boring and mundane um, that people say, well, no, that can't be true. But we notice that a lot of times these, like you're saying, these conspiracy theories have the, have the root in what we call anomaly hunting, right? If you look at any given context, any given story, any given, you know, awful tragedy, a mass shooting, you're going to find something weird because reality is complicated. But what happens then if we, if we look at the big picture and all the evidence, we come to the conclusion that, like, uh, that things are fairly normal and complicated. But if we choose just the weirdest little inconsistency and then focus on that, we are going to be able to, to sort of go down a rabbit hole of explanation. Mark, are you someone who rejects the possibility of conspiracies out of hand? Are you, are you someone who says, no, there's nothing out there that is a conspiracy that has ever been happened? Or are you open to the possibility there could be some or one or none? I mean, I, I think it's important to always stay open to believing anything. So, I, so I, what I often tell my students is I'm, I'm a bit of a wet blanket. I, I have not been convinced about many of the big conspiracy theories, uh, and, I, and I find that when they follow me through and really sit down together and look at the evidence and the counter-evidence, they tend to, to, to steer my way. But, I mean, they are welcome to argue what they want. But I think on principle it's important for everybody, academics, kind of uh, journalists and everyday citizens, to... Um, to always be open to the possibility that you could be wrong and that your way of thinking might not turn out to be true. Uh, and that's, so I think if, we, if, we too, if we're too skeptical of conspiracy theories, we end up not taking people seriously and just rejecting voices that we might want to listen to. And that's a great, that, that was one of the things I was going to be getting to because it seems to me that if we out of hand reject all of these as being just the work of or the thought process of nuts, there's no guarantee that down the road one of these things might not be true, but if you've we, sort of the cry wolf theory, we've been told so right. many times this is a conspiracy, this is a, it gets to the point where the next person, when they actually have some evidence or some facts, you go, come on, it's just like the, all the other ones and we don't pay any attention to it. Right, and that's why I think it's important to kind of use these as, uh, as teaching opportunities because what I found is that if you get people who are start off interested in the JFK assassination and you get people interested in Area 51, with students at McMaster, what we end up then doing is saying, okay, let's look at that stuff, but let's also look at the Cold War. And students, you know, who were born in the 2000s aren't really familiar with that. And you can see some real abuses, real things like the Watergate scandal or the Iran-Contra scandal, real government you know, crimes that everybody agrees happened that we're not so familiar with. And as you learn a bit more about our world and about how secret agencies that really exist actually work, what I'm interested in is the fact that this energy can be sort of translated to looking at more confirmable power relationships and kind of abuses that we know are taking place and figure out if we can turn some of that same kind of skeptical energy towards things we know are problems and can work together for. So I think there's a lot of potential in teaching, taking these as learning opportunities to figure out how power works in our world. Again, to back what we started with, uh, regardless of what comes out tomorrow, assuming these documents are released, there is nothing that is going to change, though. Once people have a conspiracy theory locked in their brain, it seems to me it's pretty difficult to unlock it. Sure. 
sure. Um, but, uh, but I mean, if we get some good evidence about about even how more complicated the case was, I mean, there's at least the, those uh, folks who have been practicing sort of looking for evidence, looking for counter evidence, will get a little bit more evidence to work with. And so I'm I'm still optimistic that the kind of the truth will come out um, in the long run. Yeah. The, one other thing before I let you go, the other sure. part about this that I find so interesting and so difficult with these is that in many of these cases, as well as being that, um, what was the word you used? The, uh, the anomaly yeah. that, but there's also with so many of these, or at least with a number of them, there have been, it appears anyway, uh, some people behind the scenes or some people involved who maybe didn't tell the complete truth for whatever reason. And not because there was right. a conspiracy, just because, for whatever reason, and that leads more credibility than someone lied, someone didn't tell the full truth, they're hiding something. Right. And I think the JFK one is a perfect example. I don't. I, I think there is enough there to say, you know, not everybody told the absolute unvarnished, complete and e- truth and everything they knew. Right. And that's led to some people saying, well, they obviously must be lying to us then. Right, and so I think it helps us remember to ask really critical questions about government transparency and how lots of times when governments want to avoid people looking too deeply into, um, you know, what happened or what choices they're making, they create their own little commission to to study the issue. Um, And so this sort of reminds us to kind of make sure we're supporting investigative journalists and that we're um, asking critical questions along with activists who are challenging the people in power. Because sometimes um, we find that they lie, they forget, and even make mistakes. But we need to make sure we're keeping them on their toes by being concerned and active citizens. Dr. Mark Busser from McMaster University. By the way, who did kill Kennedy? Oh, uh, yeah, well, I think we'll maybe we'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> I appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a wonderful topic because... I think we all probably have at least one of these things that we, even if we don't buy in wholeheartedly, I think most people have at least one of these conspiracies that they wonder about at least. And you may be the one that says, were, are there UFOs? Is there any evidence that there's life on another planet? Now, you know, some people would say that's ridiculous. Other people go, no, 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 no. I think they're, we don't know. And maybe they are hiding something. The Kennedy thing, the Princess Diana thing, that was a great one that he brought up. I wasn't even thinking about that one, but that's a perfect example. It's probably the most recent one that we have. Was There was a documentary that I watched a little bit of, I didn't see the whole thing on TV, that suggested that MI5 and the Secret Service and the this person and the House of Windsor and everyone else was all in this grand conspiracy to take out Diana because she was now possibly pregnant with the love child of Dodi Fayed and on and on and on. There are a million of these, these conspiracies. Most of them... This is the part we'll go send you to break. Most of them are, I think, pretty harmless. I should have asked him about this because I think most of these are relatively harmless. You want to believe that Princess Diana was wiped out by the British Secret Service? Well, it's, it's okay. It's not really affecting me in any way. It's not affecting you in any way, really. But there are some that I think go beyond that and they do become... Well, I know, I really believe they become problematic. The Holocaust denying group would be one of them. That's, that's not harmless anymore. I'm not sure that the 9-11 inside job thing is harmless 
because there's a lot of people who were killed, a lot of people who were killed, and it kind of mocks their loss in a way, and I think anyway, but agree to disagree if you wish. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.